This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new uh, tonight, we're glad you're here. Uh, we always love to have um, newcomers. And you're here for a night where we're actually going to describe um, what we do every week when we take this supper. So it's a great chance, if you don't know much about uh, the Lord's Supper, um, to understand what's going on here. Um, every week we do this, if you don't know that. Um, some churches uh, end with an altar call. Some of you have been to churches like that where the, at the end of the service people come down. Other churches might end with special music or something like that. But we end with um, this command of Christ, do this in memory of me, to remember me, do this. And so that's why we do this every week. And uh, it's really a drama that incarnates what I'm saying right now. So if my sermon's really terrible and I don't talk about the gospel, then this will always be a reminder that... Um, the gospel is what's going on in this table right here, which we'll talk about. But this is an incarnation of the gospel. So if I don't mention it in the sermon, this will preach it automatically. And so I try to end my sermons at the climax of this meal and what's going on with this meal. Um, so it defines the church in many ways. The church can be defined as a family of spiritual family that gathers around the table of the Lord. And that separates the church from parachurch ministries like RUF, which a lot of you are part of, or uh, Athletes in Action, or Young Life. Um, all these great parachurch ministries, they don't serve the Lord's Supper, um, or at least they often, they rarely do. And if they do, then they're beginning to be like a church, because that's what a church is. So I want to look at uh, first the centrality of the supper in the life of Jesus, and then the, the meaning of it, and why it is so central is because of what it means. So first of all, the centrality of it, um, if you look in verse 8, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And if you know, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that every year uh, the Jews uh, celebrated the Passover. They would all come to Jerusalem from all over the, uh, the Roman world. Jesus and his people came down from Galilee. Um, that's to the north of Jerusalem. They would all come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the Passover. They would be in little houses all around the city. The city grew to about a million plus people during the Passover. And so it's just jam-packed with pilgrims. And they would all come and in their own little separate households, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so uh, this particular, I'm sorry, they would celebrate the Passover, not the Lord's Supper. Um, and this particular Passover was unique for Jesus because he says the hour has come. In verse 14, that means this is the climactic hour of his entire life. And that's why he's doing this thing with the Passover. And if you look uh, at verse 10, it's a little, there's a little bit of cloak and dagger going on here, almost like spy work. Um, he had arranged everything beforehand 
to make sure that he was not arrested before this happened because he was in a lot of danger. Uh, but it says in verse 10, the disciples were to enter into Jerusalem. They were to see a man carrying a jar of water walking by. And when they saw that man carrying that water jar, they're supposed to follow that man into the first house that he goes to. And there's even a password to get into the house, which is in verse 11, ask the man, where is the guest room where we may eat the Passover? And that would be his signal that he would let you in because then you're legit. So there's a lot of uh, preparation to this. Uh, Multiple people were in on it. Verse 12, he will show you a large upper room furnished, already furnished. So there were a bunch of people who were already working on this thing. They had got the whole room prepared. The disciples would go into the city. They would talk to this guy. He would send them upstairs. And there was the room ready for them. So he, he had thought about this moment his entire life, his entire adult life at least, where he knew that one day he would gather his followers in an upper room. And you may have seen the painting or the fresco by uh, Leonardo da Vinci, but it's very famous. Uh, or there's another one, um, done by Salvador Dali. Uh, but it's a very famous scene of the, the disciples gathered on this table uh, in this upper room, eating the Lord's Supper. And this was, in many ways, what his life, like an arrow pointing to that moment. And he says in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, this Passover, this very important Passover, where I will tell you what all Passovers were ever meant to be about. Can you imagine that? All Passovers, he's saying, for all those many, many thousands of years, were pointing to me at this hour. And so I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And notice that before I suffer, that was the reason he was doing the Passover, was to tell them that what I'm about to suffer is being acted out right now. And so what, I, what I'm about to suffer, you, you folks are going to think it is meaningless and random and purposeless and makes no sense at all. And you're going to give up on me. But I want you to know before I suffer, this is what it's all about, this Passover. And so they're so slow of heart to believe that he's got to show them beforehand uh, what it's about. So he serves the supper. He suffers. He dies. He rises again. And the very first thing, or one of the very first things he does after his resurrection is he serves the Lord's Supper again. And you might know this story in Luke chapter 24, but there are these two disciples who are wandering down the road filled with despair. They've given up because the Messiah has been crucified. They thought he was the one. Now they realize he's not the Messiah because he was killed, uh, humiliated by the Romans. And so they've given up on him. They're going back to their home in Emmaus. So they're heading back home. They've given up on Jesus. And what does he do? He, he comes in a cloak, disguised, incognito. He walks up beside them and he starts asking them questions. You know, what happened back there in Jerusalem? Tell me what happened. You know, where are y'all going? They don't understand what he's saying. And then he begins to teach them how in the entire Old Testament it was all about him suffering and dying for their sins. And they still don't get it, these two disciples on the road back to Emmaus. And then finally, the, when they get that, what is going on is when he serves them the Lord's Supper. And this is in Luke 24. And um, it says that he took bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to them and their eyes were suddenly opened and they realized who he was. So this supper showed them in a way that all his words could not show them who he was, that he had died, that he had risen. It says their hearts burned within them 
while he was serving in the supper. And then after that experience on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, we see in the book of Acts, they're doing it again. They're doing the Lord's Supper again. So it's become very central to the life of the church, the Lord's Supper. And in Acts 2.42, it says the disciples were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And that's a really important phrase, the breaking of bread. Scholars know that that is a euphemism for the Lord's Supper. They would just call it the breaking of bread. And so the breaking of bread became almost synonymous with a worship service, which is why I think it's so important to make it a part of the worship service because the early church defined the worship service as the breaking of bread. And so in Acts 27, 18 chapters later, it says on the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread. That's what Paul says, and he was with the church in Ephesus. We gathered together to break bread. That doesn't mean they had a meal together. That means they served the Lord's Supper together. They actually did both, probably. But breaking of bread is a term for the Lord's Supper. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, the only chapter that Paul quotes word for word is the, is the story of the Lord's Supper. He quotes the, the Gospels. All four Gospels have it, and he quotes it practically word for word. So Paul is passing down a tradition that had been handed on to him about these words of institution. And I say it every week. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. Paul tells that to his church in Corinth. This was spreading all over the Roman Empire. This subversive meal. And I once asked a really good friend of mine who was a pastor, I said, what do you think it is that changes your people the most? What transforms your people the most? And he said, I think it's that they give and receive love. They're in each, they're in each other's presence. They, they walk with each other through life. They disciple each other. That's what really changes them. The sermon's okay. The worship service is okay. Bible studies are okay. But really what changes the person is the one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And I know what he was saying, um, but I said, well, what about the Lord's Supper? Because that seemed pretty important to the early church. And he was like, yeah, I don't know about the Lord's Supper. That, not so much. It doesn't really do anything for me. And some of you might have had that same experience where it doesn't really do much for you, where you don't really experience much. You don't even know why you're coming up here. You know, I have to say that when I was um, a brand new Christian, and for whatever reason, the church would trot out the Lord's Supper that week. And it was very random why it was happening, but it would just show up. There were the elements suddenly. And I was like, oh no, that's 15 more minutes. You know, they'll do all that liturgy. And I, I hate it when they serve the Lord's Supper. So I understand where my friend was coming from. And I think a lot of Christians are not formed in the tradition of this is really important. But I heard a historian say that for Martin Luther and John Calvin, the early reformers, they would not have recognized a church that didn't do it. They would have said, this is not Christianity. Now, they could have been wrong about that, but that's what this historian was saying, is that those reformers would simply have said, I don't understand what that was, but they didn't serve the Lord's Supper there. So it doesn't seem to me like that was a church. My point being that Jesus cannot wait to take this meal with us. I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you. And then he also says in this passage, in verse 16, I will not eat or drink until it is all fulfilled in the kingdom. So this is a preview of what's going to come in the kingdom. And he cannot wait to eat that meal, the Messianic Supper of the Lamb. That's one way that heaven is presented as a great banquet. That this, 
you know, the plastic cups and all that stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's very lowbrow. But in some way, that is a picture into what heaven is going to be like, the messianic feast of the Lamb. So that's why it's central, first point. Now, why, why is it so central? What does it mean? Verse 20 is the, is the short answer. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a bond created by blood that is administered by God. Um, there's a guy who comes to church here who actually wrote that definition. So I'm quoting Palmer Robertson, who sometimes comes here. A bond in blood sovereignly administered is what the definition of a covenant is. And so God made a covenant with Israel. That was the old covenant where he basically uh, delivered them out of Egypt took them up to the mountain of Mount Sinai, gave them the Ten Commandments, and he made a covenant in blood. Uh, he, they, killed, um, they killed animals. They, they, he actually, Moses threw blood on them, and they made a covenant together. Uh, the new covenant is a new bond, not just with Israel, but with the whole world, with anyone who wants the Messiah, who wants to be delivered from a greater empire than Egypt, uh, delivered from the empire of the self, by the blood of, of a greater sacrifice, the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb. So this is, this is the embodiment of the new covenant, which binds God's people together, a family bound by a meal together, where we are uh, in some ways partaking of the blood of Christ, symbolically. So again, in verse 7, this was uh, a Passover meal. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so each household, Jesus had a lamb. They killed the lamb. They took the blood. That was part of the service. The Passover was when um, God was liberating Israel out of Egypt. Every household had to kill a lamb that they had kept for a long time in their home so that they would love the lamb. And they had to kill that lamb and they had to paint its blood over the frame of their house. And that night when the angel of the Lord came through the city, every house that did not have blood painted over it, the firstborn son would die. This was called the Passover because the angel of death would pass over homes that were marked by blood. And so, again, this is blood that marks us, that's in some ways like smeared over the, the frame of our lives and says this person is protected by the blood of Christ and the angel of death will not touch this person. So Passover celebrated deliverance from the Egyptian empire. It was essentially the rescue of God's people Israel from uh, political oppression uh, by the Egyptians. And Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he still wanted Jesus to have that kind of effect. He wanted Jesus to be like a new Moses who would rise up and deliver Israel from Rome rescue them from Rome, and then they would get, Israel would get their power back, their freedom back. They would be liberated and no longer under the oppressor of Rome. That's what Judas wanted Jesus to do. And so when he started to realize Jesus was not going to do that, Judas actually betrayed him. Verse 22, woe to that man who betrays me. And what Jesus is saying there is how sad, woe, woe means how sad, how sad it is that you think that I exist to liberate you um, from some kind of political oppressor only. You know, and, and to apply that to our lives, it's kind of like saying how sad it is that you think I exist to make your dreams come true. 
you know, when you wish upon a star, like that I'm a genie or something like that, that helps you get what you want in life. And that's what Judas wanted the Messiah to be, to be simply another Moses who would liberate the people from a political oppressor of Rome. And a lot of times we treat God in the same way. And this is a betrayal of God. This is why he, he says that, that Judas betrayed him. You may know Steph Curry. He's the greatest shooter of all time. He's two-time MVP. Played at Davidson. Plays on the Golden State Warriors. He's very famously a Christian. He has written on his shoes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I love Steph Curry. But I'm imagining that maybe he's misinterpreting that verse to mean that I, I, can, I can make threes a lot if, uh, if God, if Jesus really helps me be a good basketball player. And I'm not, I like Steph Curry. I'm not sure that's what he means. But a lot of times when we say like uh, that verse, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a future and not to harm you. A lot of times we interpret that to mean that God is going to help me fulfill my dreams. And he's going to make my dreams come true. And that is a betrayal of, of who Christ is, of who God is. You know, I woke up this morning and um, I was feeling kind of depressed. I mentioned this in the last sermon last week that same thing happened to me last week. What happened to me this morning, and uh, my wife was asking why I was depressed, and uh, I hemmed and hawed and gave you know, vague answers that weren't true. And then I finally said, I think that I am resentful of God right now because I feel like I'm working so hard for him and he is completely messing up my life. And that's just the flip side or the dark side of the same mentality that Steph Curry might have, that Judas definitely have, that we all have, I think, which is that God is there to get us what we want, to help us to find success in life, to have you know, good grades, good family, good health, whatever it is, fitness, um, kids that are great, you know, all these dreams, these wish dreams we have, that Jesus is there to get those things done. But that's not what the new covenant is about. Um, this is the way Israel felt in the wilderness when God was still making that covenant with them in, in Exodus 16.3, and Matt read this earlier this evening. But when God did not give them what they wanted, they said, if only the Lord had killed us in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. So right in the middle of the new covenant that God is making with Israel after he liberates them from Egypt, they're moaning about wanting to go back to Egypt to get the flesh pots of meat and to have all the bread they want. And they're, they're, they want to go back into captivity because God is not giving them what they want, which again, that's betrayal. And then a few chapters later, when God is kind of putting the finishing touches on the covenant with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, when, when God and Moses are on Mount Sinai, what are they doing down in the valley? They're, they're having an orgy. They have created a golden calf. They've melted down all the temple instruments that were supposed to be used to make the tabernacle. And they, they have built a golden calf, and they're worshiping the calf. And they're saying, this is, the, this is the God who got you out of Egypt, this golden calf right here. Again, betrayal. And I think that we're all traitors to grace. And we, we basically want God to give us what we want, leave us alone, let us eat our meat, let us sleep with who we want to sleep with. And so the old covenant was not enough. It, it did not reach inside. It helped Israel get out of Egypt, but it didn't help Egypt get out of Israel. There was still inside of Israel that 
Egyptian empire mindset they could not escape. And so in the new covenant, Jesus comes rushing into our lives through this meal and he gives us himself. He gives us a whole new way of being a human being. It's not deliverance from external problems. It is, it is a deliverance from the empire of the self, not the Egyptian empire, not the Roman empire. We need a whole new identity inside of us and that's what this meal does. The new covenant shed in my blood. It, it gives us a whole new identity. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, I think this is the passage in, in, the, in the whole Bible that most accurately describes what is going on in the Lord's Supper. It's very short. Paul says, when we eat the bread that we eat, which we're about to do in about five minutes, and we, when we drink from the cup that we drink, are we not uh, sharing in the life of Christ? And that word share is koinonia in Greek. It also means to participate in the life of Jesus. And he means that very literally, that when we partake of the body and the blood, we are actually somehow being mingled together with Christ, that Jesus Christ, his very own DNA, so to speak, you know, his spiritual DNA is, is getting wrapped up into ours. And we get a new genetic code, in a sense, a spiritual genetic code, like two DNA strands mingling together. And this becomes who we are. It defines us. You know, we have to walk up here. So it's, you can't just sit in your seats. You have to actually come up here. That's, that does something to you just simply to walk up here and, and want something. And then we ask people to put their hands out. And so this posture is a posture of a beggar asking for something. That changes us to come up here with our, our hands out like that. Um, the sanitizer is not meant to be part of the sacrament, but it helps us to know that our hands are clean. So that works. The, um, the eating of it, you know, just taking the very life of of, of God incarnate into ourselves, that's powerful to think about eating, ingesting God, so to speak. And then the blood, the same way you drink it to the dregs, you, you drink, and we all do it together at once. It's a very powerful symbol. And those bodily actions like will change your life from a person who you know is angry and holds grudges and won't forgive. Maybe you're holding a grudge right now against someone. Maybe you won't forgive someone. Well, the, the, the actual act of this grace where you share in the life of Christ, it makes you into a person who is free, who is liberated to forgive people, who can actually forgive people who hate you. People who have ruined your life, it allows you to forgive them. It, it turns you from a person who feels overworked and underappreciated into a person who knows they're a sinner, who is showered, with admiration from God, with affection from God. You know, at this meal, we are a family of people who say, we are traitors, we are traitors to God, but we are just as loved in that moment as we are traitors. It defines us. So imagine, I'll end with this. Imagine it's that Thursday night, okay? It's um, back in 33 AD, and imagine we're in an upper room. I don't know how big that was, but let's say it was about as big as this square up here. Um, from that pole to that tree and back. It's about that big and a big upper room. I don't know how many disciples are in that room, but they're all gathered around. And there would have been little clay, you know, oil lamps flickering and big embroidered curtains. And there's households all over Jerusalem doing this together. And there's Jesus with his followers. And he is saying, I am the lamb. You thought all these years that it was about that lamb back in Egypt, but I'm the lamb. 
And there's Judas sitting right there, kind of picking his nails or not making eye contact. And, and Jesus knows that he's about to betray him. He can tell by the lack of eye contact, maybe, that uh, Judas is about to betray him. And he even says in verse 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. So evil, it says that Satan entered into him and Satan is depicted as a serpent. So there's the serpent right next to Jesus, coiled up right here. But instead of recoiling from that snake, John tells us that he actually took the bread and he gave it to Judas. And he said, Judas, my friend, my betrayer, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you. And there's a lot of debate about whether Judas is saved or not. He committed suicide, but that doesn't mean he's not saved. But, but we do know this, that Jesus offered him grace. At the last minute, he said, even though I know you're about to betray me and turn me into Rome so that I'll be crucified, I give you my grace. So if you're wondering this evening whether you deserve the Lord's Supper, whether you're a good enough person to come down here and partake, just know that he gave it to Judas. He gave it to the traitor right next to him. So I think he wants to give it to you too. He eagerly desires to give it to you. And so this, this, this meal is a call to all of us to come down here together, to put our hands out like this, to receive grace, to take it into our body, to drink it, and then all, do it all at once at the end. Um, that's what this meal is about. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, I don't know what I believe. I'm really not sure if I accept all what you're saying. So I don't know if I feel comfortable coming down here to take this meal. And I would say that's totally fine. If you're not sure what you believe about Jesus and you're not sure that you're comfortable doing this, do not feel any pressure from us. When I used to go to church, when I was an atheist, every now and then, I didn't know what to do at this moment. I wish some preacher had said, don't feel any pressure. So feel no pressure. But just know that it is a meal for traitors. That it was on the night he was betrayed, Paul says. Uh, not on the night that his disciples showered him with love, but the night they all fled. It was on that night that he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body for you and he took the cup and he said this is my blood shed for you so whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup we proclaim his death until he comes again so i'll pray for us as i